Lila. Welcome to Art Crush on this beautiful and cold Monday morning. I'm Josephine Burdens. I'm Sveva Kander. And together we take you into artist studios around the world. And you can find all sorts of fantastical things in art studios like paintings and drawings and sculptures and sometimes even a coffin. And on that note, Svea, who do we have a crush on today? Today we have a crush on Angela Hennessy. Angela, I don't even know how to put her into words um, except to tell you this story of how we met a quite lovely young woman after one of Angela's talks at Southern Exposure from her show, When and Where I Enter. And this woman was was really lovely, but she kept talking about how much she loved Angela and how amazing Angela was and how she really wanted Angela to be her mentor. She was a former student of Angela's and she went to all of Angela's events and it started to feel like a little bit, you know, maybe this was a little bit stalkerish or something just just maybe you know just but it turns out <laughs> that's actually an entirely appropriate response to meeting Angela Hennessy. You just become totally smitten because she's just so imminently crushworthy. She's a wonderful, wonderful person. She's very warm. She's very welcoming. And she's a great artist. Yeah, so Angela Hennessy is a multimedia artist and her studio is in West Oakland. The topics Angela works around are mourning, grieving blackness and the work she makes are mostly made out of human hair so the works at southern exposure that we saw were made out of synthetic and human hair and they get like this very fragile look um delicate in a way but also very powerful deep very deep yeah. and dark, dark. Yeah. yeah definitely Brilliant. dark yeah such incredible work My name is Angela Hennessy, and I am an Oakland-based interdisciplinary artist. Josephine picked me up and we drove to West Oakland, um, which is industrial Oakland, but like most of Oakland, it's residential too. I'm going to do my best not to take over this interview, okay? No, you should ask questions. You ask I know. so very good insights. Yeah, but like then it's just all me talking and that's not, that's not the show. The show is not Svea interviews people with a wonderful audience of Josephine Budens. <laughs> that's not the show. Well, I'll try to speak more. I, I tend to be like a... Feel free to kick me. It's beautiful old houses beside beautiful old warehouses. And the sounds of real work happening, real things being made, real things being shipped, real saws, real soldering irons. I had to text her. Okay. Hello. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Good. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. My space is upstairs Angela's studio is on the second floor of a small warehouse. It has a wall of south-facing windows, brick walls, a small bathroom, a sink and two large tables in the center, arrayed with locks of hair. So are they always on the table, your objects? Yeah, I, I tend... I can, this is kind of how I work. <laughs> I mean, I have to say I did clean up for you guys. Like, Aww. it was literally a huge 
huge and heap. Okay. I mean, I I'm, was gonna ask. I'm I'm like, are you always this organized? Oh, like, this does not feel organized to me at all. Oh, this looks no, great. I mean, I tend to make like lots of parts and pieces of stuff, and then depending on you know a particular show or some particular theme, then I sort of gather everything. But I start with like a, a sort of a library of objects and then piece it all together. I'm on the edge of outgrowing this space. So, you know, I tend to, if I don't have things out in front of me where I can see them, then I can't keep track of them. So often what that means is that I have a lot of things out all over. But then what happens is that gives me the opportunity when I have a specific object that I'm trying to make, I have a lot of resources to turn to and to figure things out. and. I can't always just imagine things in my head, and so I need to be able to see them side by side or push particular materials up against each other and actually have like a live in-person experience, you know? Yeah. My space is pretty full, and it feels, I mean, sometimes I come in here and it's totally overwhelming. <laughs> just, you know, even though they're all my own things, I'm like, oh my God, somebody clean up in here. But then when I start working, you know, you get busy and you just, you get in a groove. As I get closer to a show or some kind of deadline, I move things around, you know, so... Like, like, I actually just moved these tables back, but I had pushed them out of the way so that I could lay the rainbow down on the floor in here, you know, and then, okay, then the rainbow was done. And I the actual rainbow piece is big, 15 feet wide, 8 feet tall, which is a sizable amount of crochet. No, but no. And she doesn't have any studio assistance. I crocheted every stitch of that thing myself. So, I mean, this is the main table that I work at. You know, if I'm crocheting or doing hair wrapping or making flowers, I'm at this table. And then I tend to lay things out sort of as a display or, you know, that I can see what I'm doing. It looks very cozy. <laughs> like this. It feels so welcoming and comfortable to see all these pieces laying on the table. I mean, I like that idea of that maybe an aesthetic of coziness makes the work seem approachable in a particular way or perhaps accessible in a particular way. But then I think too that it's important that the layers of maybe discomfort um, or, you know, sort of some of the tensions around the work in terms of racial identities, you know, objects that are grieving becomes another layer to the cozy, right? That it's all, it can all be there simultaneously and maybe sometimes as a collision almost. Um, and then I have, yeah, I don't know, like lots of pins and sewing supplies, hair supplies, combs and brushes, things like that. I usually keep a bunch of hair just sort of hanging on the wall, so I have the raw stock sort of experience, what it looks like when you buy it at the store. Um, and then I just put these two black panels up against the white wall so that I could have, you know, start thinking more about my work against a black wall, which was a new aspect of the work at Southern Exposure, was having black painted walls as the background. And then over here, I guess this is like all my hardware. Um, she also has a table that's all shiny metal. Golden chains, sheets of copper, and a very special crochet hook. Used for crocheting the rainbow. Yeah. This one. This is this is That's my amazing. magic crochet hook. This is my favorite one. I have it's I have so like probably I have like hundreds of crochet hooks, but this is my this is favorite one. Yeah. yeah and it's sparkly. And it's yes, sparkly. right. 
I know. <laughs> I think the way, I'm really interested in the way that light interacts with materials. And, you know, that was really like what brought me to this work maybe in the very beginning in grad school was thinking about the interaction uh, of light. And so the working with the gold and working with this like glossy black enamel is very much for me like about sort of calling in that visual experience that there's like a little flash of light or something that catches your eye. My formal training is in metalwork. You know, metal was my first material making jewelry. These are mostly all just store-bought faux gold, golden chain. But I, you know, in school, I mean, I learned how to make chain and I used to, I thought I was going to be a jewelry designer. Actually, that was kind of the path I was going in my 20s. But I think some of that sensibility, certainly it's informed my relationship to materials, how I work with materials now, and the kind of scale that I work at, and sometimes the little detail, sort of fussy things that I do, that totally comes out of my background as a jeweler. Yeah. And the coffin? Um, <laughs> that, someone, someone gave that to me. Someone it's saw that and thought... <laughs> Angela, well, Angela much. this in yes, the studio. Actually, that's kind of exactly what happened. Um, and it's, it's, I haven't that's quite great. figured out what to do with it, but it's just too amazing to, to not have. And, and my son keeps saying he wants to lay inside of it. It's, it's actually, I think, intended to be horizontal, mm -hmm. you know, like a coffin. Mm. So you could lay inside of the cage part. Anyway, you haven't let him yet? Um, he hasn't, we haven't done it yet, but maybe we will. <laughs> Angela structures her thoughts with mind maps. I don't know, maybe it's time for a new one. There's but an oversized you know, piece of paper on the wall with visually arranged words and phrases of her thoughts and ideas. And just becomes this place, a gathering site, you know, where it's like I can just have random thoughts and text and language. And I get ideas for titles from my maps quite a bit and things that I read. I keep note cards in my purse. I'm always writing things down. So it's just another kind of form of that. Instead of an artistic practice, she has an aesthetic practice. Gallery or studio-based work. And so when I say aesthetic, I mean aesthetic as in a full sensory experience, a full range of experience, how I know things through my body, not just necessarily a visual experience. So I'm trying to expand what that might mean. Yeah, so the hospice work and the doula work keeps me really grounded, basically. It, I think if I were just talking about death and grief in the studio or in an academic environment, it would be pretty easy to sort of go off in a very abstract kind of theoretical space. That, for me, is a very different way of being in the conversation than the way that I feel when I'm you know, sitting at the bedside of someone who is dying. It also keeps me, I think, in a, in a fairly vulnerable space as well, you know, of just understanding the precarity of being a human being. <laughs> yeah, this idea of what textiles do for the body and with the body and the sensory experience of touch and the tactile, right? And of course, all of that ties into death and dying and, and really just, you know, even more broad than that, just being a human being. You know, we basically begin our lives in textile structures or as textile mm -hmm. structures. And, 
you know, even if you think to like the umbilical cord and the amniotic sac. So we start that way and the first sensory experience that we have in the womb is touch and sound. And it's also believed that touch and sound as well are the last senses to go when someone is dying. I started doing a lot of research, as you do in grad school, and when you have to write about your work, that really brought me into some historical grounding, looking primarily at European, specifically Victorian, mourning practices and thinking about the role of cloth in the 1800s. That was kind of my entry point. But I also recognized right away that this was a very white European Eurocentric practice. But looking at the hair jewelry specifically from that period and then thinking about hair as a material that in many cultures around the world is one of the materials that mediates the boundary between the living and the dead. I think, you know, some people maybe are more inclined to want to be present and engaged with difficult or complex topics. And some people don't, right? And so for me, I, I don't know how to not be. I mean, I, I, there isn't a space for me to not be engaged in the politics of the black body. So I find ways to bring, I mean, my own experiences primarily, sometimes, you know, obviously thinking about, you know, the particular narrative about black female bodies right now. And so all of that kind of feeds into the work. For me, I, there isn't a space where I get to be free of that, you know, and, and so I, I choose as an artist to go right into it. Um, but I think it's a different experience for people who are viewing the work and coming to it you know, from whatever's going on in their own lives. I mean, we're so saturated with images and information on a daily, you know, kind of constant basis. And so sometimes there just isn't space to, like, take on those complexities of, of identity and sexuality and danger or being, you know, with that black hole piece. Like, I wanted it to pull people in, but to simultaneously push them away, and, you know, in a particular way that, you know, is sort of illogical, really. But you have to be an art viewer that is open to being moved by the work. And, and not everybody is, and that's okay. Angela's connection to this work is deep. She's been crocheting since she was a child. And hair and grieving are also deeply connected for her. My connection between hair and grieving came out of like early childhood trauma. And cutting my hair as a way of like marking my body and wanting to externalize grief that I was feeling. Although, of course, as a child, I didn't have any language like that, but that was the way that it manifested. And that was in the 70s where everything was about the fro. And so my mom, I mean, I have specific like memories of my mom trying to brush my hair out. You know, like maybe similar to how it is now, but at the time that was not the, that was not what I wanted my hair to do. You know, I wanted like, the Fair Fawcett or the Jamie Summers kind of. And and so you grew up in Humboldt County? 
uh, part of the time. Yes, (laughs) I did. I went kind of back and forth a bit between Monterey and Humboldt County. Yeah, my godparents had land up in Northern California, way like out in the, you know, they were 60s, back to the land, hippies and growing marijuana. And, you know, we had solar showers and a solar oven and lived in like in a little cabin. I mean, I spent my summers sleeping outside, riding horses. And yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty amazing. Where we lived up Salmon Creek Road was, I mean, gosh, it was like a good 45 minutes or an hour, I think. I mean, the cars were so old then and dirt, you know, out a dirt road. I had a godbrother, have a godbrother. Yeah, I mean, there were lots of kids that lived up in Salmon Creek. So, but, you know, we all lived maybe, you know, a mile to three miles apart. But in the summer, it was basically like whoever was the closest. (laughs) They were your friends. (laughs) (laughs) Because there was no one else around, like literally no one else around. (laughs) (laughs) About the manifesto, we were thinking it was autobiographical. Mm -hmm. Was it? Is the is the manifesto? Yeah, like is it true? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what I mean. Yes, yes, it is. I mean, I would say the bulk of it was written maybe within the first four or five months after the shooting. I, I think it maybe even started out as just seven sentences, and then it became, quickly became ten, and it was a one through ten, and I was thinking about the Black Panther ten-point plan. And so it started out as a ten-point plan about death and grief, and wanting to bring in this idea of death as the teacher, and that we're all students in the face of death. In terms of the show that I had last fall at Southern Exposure, you know, I think the first step maybe that that show might be taking or, you know, has taken is to sort of even just make a morning practice visible and to sort of make the connection between morning practices and materials and bodies and spaces and light. And, you know, even just taking the title of the exhibition, the when and where I enter is, you know, very much about navigating different types of space. And grief is certainly one of those spaces that that I'm interested in. There was a piece at the very end that I was going to make. The idea was that it would hang on the wall that had the title. I did hang a piece there that was a strand of the white kind of blonde hair pom-poms. So there was a piece there, but what I had envisioned for that piece was actually a lighting going to hang all the way from the ceiling and come down and be sort of a hair globe light. The piece that I just made for State Gallery is actually kind of that piece. So it kind of worked out perfectly that I had another show coming up to, to sort of immediately follow that idea. I had thought that for the closing panel discussion, I thought that I would make a standing lamp for that artist talk and that we would be having our conversation under a hair lamp. And I had been thinking about the lantern laws from the 1700s, the requirement for black people to carry lanterns if they were out at night. So this idea of lighting the black body. My fantasy is that I do readings, either my manifesto or have other African-American black people do readings under a lamp, like a sort of lantern kind of lamp thing. Yeah, so that's, I think that's, you know, maybe the next thing that's coming up. When and Where I Enter was an incredible solo show, and getting ready for it 
wasn't easy. Got to know basically all of the hair stores in the East Bay and a few in San Francisco. But what started happening, a couple of the colors that I was using changed. (laughs) So I got two thirds of the way through the rainbow. And then the third band of colors, I couldn't get the colors that I needed. And so I had definitely had a few moments of total freak out. But then, yeah, I just kept going back and looking for like, where's the old color as opposed to this new color and trying to explain to them that even though they had the same code, they were different colors and trying to show (laughs) these store owners like these are two different colors and they're looking at me kind of like I'm crazy. But yeah, I'm very particular about about the colors. And and actually the third row, one color is different than the the series in the other two bands, but I think it's probably not <laughs> noticeable. <laughs> but yeah, it was a lot of hair <laughs> and I kept even the whole last week before the show and when the installation started, I kept having to go back and buy more hair and I was having this experience of like, okay, this will be the last batch of hair that I need. Like I really have plenty. And then I would turn around and be like, where's all that hair I bought? And, you know, realize that it was already in the work. I did not sleep the night before the opening. It was crazy. I left Southern Exposure on Friday in the, like, early afternoon. I remember I was walking out and I was going back to Oakland to go home and take a shower and get my nails done. So I leave the gallery and I remember turning around. I had this moment where I turned around and I looked back at the show and I was like, damn, that looks pretty good. Like, okay. You know, it's like that recognition of it's actually done. And I left. I was getting my nails done in Oakland, literally falling asleep in the chair at the nail salon. The manicurist, she was getting all pissed off at me. She's like, Angela, you have to wake up. And it's like, oh, my God, you have no idea. And then I, you know, turned around and went back. You can see Angela's work on her website, AngelaHennessy.com. That's A-N-G-E-L-A-H-E-N-N-E-S-S-Y.com. Welcome back from our studio visit with Angela Hennessy. Mm, yay! I learned so much. Me too. Mind maps, for example. I never, ever did that before. Really? Yeah, no. They do that a lot here, like in Norwegian schools. I don't know what they're called in Norwegian, but in Sami, they're called Jordakarta. It's from beautiful. This, yeah, isn't that nice? But it's from this, yeah. this verb to think, which is Jordashit, which my kids find hilarious. And also <laughs> Karta, which means map. So it's a Jordakarta. It's like a huge part of their um, language development aspect of schooling. Oh, that's very cool. If people want to see pictures of Angela's work, where can they do that? Well, photos from the studio tour and images of her work and even a transcript of this show can be found at artcrushinternational.com. And that's also where you can sign up for our newsletter. Yeah, I think we do need a reward for signing up for the newsletter, like some kind of prize. Huh. All right. Maybe we could also actually start writing a newsletter then. (laughs) I mean, that is too obvious. (laughs) All right, then. What do we have on next? Next is the bot, the beautiful online thing. Okay, so for your bot, your beautiful online thing today, I would like you to go to flickr.com. And then where there's like the search bar, type in Chef Shaolin. 
Which, have you been to Chef Shaowen? Do I? Uh, no, but I've seen beautiful pictures of Chef yeah. Shaowen. So you spell it C-H-E-F-C-H-A-O-U-E-N. Of course, it will be in the show notes. It's really extremely photogenic. Like, it's the most photogenic town in Morocco. Look at that. Yeah. I see a lot of blue, though. Yeah. So that's the thing, it's... is that the town is painted blue. It's beautiful. Yeah, so tell me what you see. So um, I get all these pictures of Chef Shaowen, as I just said. Lots of blue, beautifully painted houses in blue colors, all sorts of hues of blue. I also see pictures of like the town itself, which is like on a hillside, I guess. Mm -hmm. There's also all these pictures of bags, fabric bags full of like pigment of colors. I know. That's really vibrant. And that's wow. I have that photo. I took that photo too. Oh, you went to Chef Shaowen? <laughs> yes, I was there oh. in, I guess, 2007. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a long time ago. I can read you a little <laughs> history of, uh, of Chef Shaowen. Would you like please, to hear that? Okay. Please, do. Oh, it says, during the late 15th century, the Spanish Inquisition forced Muslims and Jews out of Europe. Beginning in 1471, Chef Shaowen was founded essentially as a refugee camp with a prominent Jewish influence. They think that it was due to following Jewish traditions where the refugees painted their buildings blue as a reminder of God's power above. I don't really know what happened to the Jewish population in Chef Shaowen. There is the remains of a synagogue somewhere uh -huh. in the hills that my friend that I was traveling with, she went. Uh, but today they still paint their houses blue, even though I don't think there's many Jewish people in the town. That's very interesting. Yeah, it's really lovely. Yeah. These are pastel blues. Yeah. And there's a range of blues, and some of them are turquoise, and some of them are more in the indigo, and they mix it all up. Yeah. It's just a gorgeous color palette. Wonderful. You put any yeah. other color against this color, and it looks gorgeous. Oh, yeah. wow. It's beautiful. It's Everybody should check this out. So that's, okay. uh, that's Chef Shaowen on Flickr. And who will we have a crush on next week? Well, next week we are doing something a little different. We are going to Tippet Rise. Ooh, where is that? It's in Fishtail, Montana. It's where these two obscenely kind and extremely wealthy artists have set up an arts institute. They're a couple, Peter and Kathy Halstead. So I guess we could have a crush on them. I don't know if we've ever had a couple crush before. No, I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, we can have oh, a polycule, cool. a polycule crush. <laughs> and, uh, and they named it after Kathy's mom, who I believe was named Tippett. And they have this like huge, gorgeous cathedral-like concert space with like perfect acoustics and rolling hills and cows. And they have so many incredible large-scale sculptures. It is perfect. It is a sacred place to me, for sure. Ooh, that sounds good. I want to see your sacred place. <laughs> sacred place. Sacred place. Sacred place. <laughs> Okay, uh, only if you're good. Tune in next week to come along to Tippet Rice, Montana. In the meantime, develop your crush by finding the organization on Instagram, tippet.rice. And please remember to tell your friends about the show, to subscribe, rate and review on Spotify podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can connect with us on Instagram. Oh my God, that's terrible. Why did I say it like that? Art Crush <laughs> underscore international. <laughs> Until next time. Bye.